we're gonna we're gonna assume that we are running. I have done what is right and just. Sure, your servants will be. Let not the arrogant oppress me. Times fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to the love. Teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment, and uh, that I may understand your statutes. Time for you to act on because I love your commandments more than gold, more than pure gold. Good stuff. Okay, we have, uh, we'll read this. I don't think I have any prayer requests. I had kind of a funny Isaac. couple days. Isaac in Uganda needs prayer. Thank you. Uh, he, uh, he's got, a, you said he's got a flu or he's got the flu again. The guy works himself completely into uh, uh, ill health about five times a year. He needs to stop that, but he's just a he's nonstop worker. So we'll pray for Isaac. And uh, let's see here. We've got today is, I didn't write the day up there, 25, 24, 23? 22nd. 22nd. Okay, April 22nd. So we'll read this. And let's 19, 20, 21, 20. Okay, April 22nd. He went where he didn't want to go. In 1536, John Calvin no longer felt safe in his native France, so he left for Strasbourg, a free city situated between France and Germany that had declared itself Protestant. On his way there, he stopped for the night in Geneva, Switzerland. Just two months earlier, Geneva had given its allegiance to Protestantism as a result of the labors of William Farrell, who had been ministering there for three years. <clears throat> that evening, Farrell met Calvin and immediately asked him to join in leading the church in Geneva. Calvin declined, saying he wanted to go to Strasbourg to study and write. Farrell thundered at him that unless Calvin joined him in Geneva, God would bring down curses upon him. Somewhat intimidated by Farrell's pronouncement, 28-year-old Calvin agreed to stay, even though his preference was to go on to Strasbourg. Calvin's initial stay in Geneva, however, was short. In January 1537, Geneva's Council of 200 zealously enacted a series of ordinances prohibiting immoral behavior, gambling, foolish songs, and desecration of Sunday, with no thoughts as to how they would be enforced. In July, the council ordered all citizens to assent to a confession of faith. In November, the council ordered banishment for anyone who refused to swear to the confession. This was more than the man on the street could stomach, and in the city council election, three days later, a majority of anti-clerical councilmen were elected. The new city council and Calvin and Farrell locked horns when the council ordered the two pastors to administer the Lord's Supper to everyone, regardless of their spiritual condition. On Easter, while preaching in a separate while preaching in separate churches, both Calvin and Farrell announced that they would not give the Lord's Supper to such a rebellious city. In the, many in the audiences drew their swords, and without the aid of friends, neither pastor would have made it safely home. The Council of 200 met the following day, April 22, 1538, to decide their fate. The meeting stretched into a second day, at which time the order was given to Calvin and Farrell to leave Geneva within three days. 
Farrell went to Nach Nuachtal, I guess, or Nuach, whatever, I can't pronounce it. And Calvin returned to his original plan and went to Strasbourg. In Strasbourg, Calvin became pastor of the Church of the Strangers, a French refugee church. There he met and married Idlette de Boer, the widow of an Anabaptist. Calvin was content in Strasbourg and probably would have spent the rest of his life there had it not been for the Roman Catholic Cardinal's efforts to bring Geneva back into the fold of the Catholic Church. In 1539, the Cardinal wrote to the Genevans, inviting them to return to the Pope. No one in the city of Geneva felt qualified to answer the letter, so it was sent to Calvin to respond, which he did very effectively. Meanwhile, Geneva was not doing well in his absence. A new election had placed the city government back into the hands of friends who feared in the old, who feared that the only way to save the city from anarchy was to bring Calvin back. As a result, in October 1540, the Council of 200 voted to invite him back to Geneva. Once again, Calvin's personal desire was not to go to Geneva. He wrote to a friend, There is no place in the world which I fear more, not because I hate it, but because I feel unequal to the difficulties which await me there. And once again, it was through the counsel and persuasion of Farrell, who himself was not invited back, that Calvin was convinced to return. He returned to Geneva in September 1541, and ministered there the rest of his life, making Geneva the center for the Reformed faith. John Calvin spent most of his life in a place where he would rather not have been. <clears throat> Yet he was convinced that God wanted him in Geneva, so that is where he ministered. Do you put geographical limitations on where you will serve God? We will always be happiest when we are in the center of God's will, regardless of where that may be. Ray and Jess Willett can tell you that, I'm sure. With my authority, take this message of repentance to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Luke 24, 47. So there you go, John Calvin, Geneva. Um, let's see, we have, um, oh, I wanted to read you something before we get started today, and then we'll have a, well, no, we'll pray, and then we'll get into that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into uh, your presence, <clears throat> to share in your word, and to share with others. And it sure is good to be in your presence, Lord. I can't think of any other thing in this world that is more wonderful than knowing that you are there and that you have a plan for us and a purpose and that uh, you are guiding our every single step, no matter what it is. You're a great God. You're a wonderful Lord. You're a faithful Savior. And we just look to you in your open hand of grace for every, every step that we take. Help us to do that, not to get our eyes diverted away from you. Lord, we ask that uh, this class would be conducted in a way that is honoring of you, and that if there's something said which is not correct, that you would bring it to our attention so that we would not teach a doctrine which is uh, not in accord with your will. And Lord, we just thank you for this chance to meet here, to share in this word with all these wonderful people. May you be glorified, Lord, for all you do for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I uh, have a verse from James. Four, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So. 
James reminds us that we don't have control of our own life and that the things that we do are totally in the hand of the Lord. And uh, that happened yesterday to me. I was out mowing and I realized uh, uh, that the Lord has control over all things once again because uh, by uh, an hour later I was in the emergency room uh, of the hospital, having been taken there by the EMS. And uh, it was actually pretty close, I suppose. Hidako was there, and she was a little worried, I think, at one point that I didn't make it. But uh, I didn't know that I had an allergy to bee stings, because I've had bees now for 20 years at my house, and and I got bit by some bees, and they, uh, they it, it just went from bad to worse. I mean, in 30-minute time frame, I got to the point where, um, you know, but it didn't bother me. The only thing that went through my mind the entire time was I was saying, oh, I get to go be with Jesus. I just kept thinking that. And then I thought, you know what? My dad won't handle this well. He wouldn't, you know, mom, she, I, I said, she'd be proud of me. I beat her to Jesus. You know, Hidiko would be better off without me. So we got all these things going through my mind. But I thought, dad, he would not handle this well. I know my dad. He, he would really. And so I'm glad that I'm here because of that. But you don't know what's going to happen to you five minutes from now. You don't know. And so, uh, what I would ask you to consider, I said this when my friend Kelly Carlin died one day. She just dropped dead, and uh, I knew her from school, and she attended at the Superior Word for years. Never missed a service, ever, unless her daughter was in a military parade. She would take that Sunday and go with her daughter. But other than that, she never missed, and one day she was just gone. And I said, you know, we got to evaluate our friendships and our relationships and the things we do because we don't know what tomorrow will hold. And uh, they got me all patched up, and I was out there by 9 o'clock, and, uh, you know, it was great. I'm telling you, I came home. I late, That's the latest I've been up in probably, uh, gosh, in years. I stayed up until 9 o'clock last night, but I, um, I uh, slept. I didn't set the clock, and I slept from 9 o'clock until 5 a.m., and I never got up once. I never even woke up. It was great. I haven't got that much sleep in as long as I can remember, but... Uh, I woke up and my face was still this big. And anyway, so just remember to cherish the people that you're with. Remember to listen to what James says because you don't know what is coming tomorrow. You have no idea what's coming. And so try not to be boastful and arrogant in your steps. Just know that the Lord may send a bee to sting you and that could be the end of you. And I, I had no idea that I would be allergic to bee sting. So, but uh, uh, Jim called me at the hospital. I so much appreciate that. and. Um, my son, Hidako, was with me, and I did not want her to stay. She had things to do at the house. We got eight puppies, and they needed to be fed, and it, everything just needed. And I wanted her to go, and I couldn't get her to go if there wasn't somebody there with me. So I said, you call Thor. Maybe he'll come, because he works in the hospital anyway. And the boy showed up. Hidako left, and I said to Thor, now you can go. I just wanted... And he would not leave for three hours. That kid sat there with me. He would not leave. And so, yeah, but I just wanted her to be able to get out there and not feel like she was abandoning me. And I said, Thor, I'll get a taxi home whenever they let me out. And he would have none of it. He stayed. And uh, But the first thing Thor said to me is, he said, you know, I'm getting married in June. And then... You're and supposed to do that. I'm, yeah, you're supposed to do the service there. And then when... Faith, his girlfriend, got off at 7 o'clock because she works upstairs also. She came down, and the first thing she said to me is, you know, we're supposed to get married in June. <laughs> so there you go. That's uh, Just trust the Lord, but at the same time know that he may want to have 
a different plan for you for today than you had planned for yourself. So there you go. Unless okay. It has to do with your wedding. Yeah, unless it has something to do with your wedding. Wedding. That's right. He obviously wants me to do only four stings. I got one here. I got one here. Two here. Two here. One here, and then one down here on the padding somewhere. And so only four. It's I've had many more than that in the past, but it it was the most painful thing I've ever felt in my life was. It was, and I didn't have any of the, you know, they say your breathing will stop. That did not happen. I was breathing the whole, I was throwing up a lot, but um, yeah, it, I don't know. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. We got to get to uh, Ephesians chapter two. We're, st we're st oh wait, are we? Because I didn't circle that. Did we? It is. Okay, two, one. I did not circle that from last week. So shame on me. Thank you for paying attention. Um, okay. And we're in uh, Galatians, Ephesians, which I do not have bookmarked. So Ephesians 2, verse 1 is where we're starting today. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which... Oh, sorry, that was good. Okay, yes, it's a short verse. This one says trespasses and sin. So uh, depends on, you know, the Bible will use different words to translate the same idea. You'll see something called the peace offering, and another Bible will call it a fellowship offering. Or you'll have somebody call it a trespass, and another one will call it a transgression. As long as they're consistent with that translation, don't worry about it because these are words that are out of the Hebrew. They have a meaning which can vary, and our choice of that word will not be that much different. A trespass and a transgression really is not that different. So this is out of the Greek here, yes. But what they also want to be consistent from the Hebrew. That's another thing about translations is it's not just you have Greek scholars that are doing the Greek and Hebrews that are doing, you also want to make sure that what they're translating in the Hebrew will be the same thing as translating it from the Greek. So you have consistency because when they talk about in Hebrews, I don't know if they talk about the fellowship offering. I'm just, you know, but if they do, they want to use the same term that was used in the Hebrew, the fellowship offering. Or if they called it a peace offering like the NIV does, then they want to be consistent and call it theirs. As long as they're consistent, that's the main thing. Um, but trespass, transgression. Um, okay, commentary. <clears throat> there is a lot going on in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Oh, I'm going to make this a little shorter today. I'm not going to go a whole hour and a half, and I apologize. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, in one sense, the first verses match the Genesis creation account. Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians reflect the chaos which occurred at the beginning. Verse 4 parallels the Spirit of God hovering over those waters of chaos. Verses 4 through 10 reflect the calling of creation into order. What occurred on a physical level in creation also occurs in a spiritual sense in the redemption of man. And so you can see that Paul obviously had the, the creation account on his mind, or, you know, he might not have even been thinking it, but he just, the Spirit of God was di directing him in this way. There are also two streams of attention which are being addressed in this chapter. In verses 1, 8, and 11, Paul writes in the second person. However, in verses 3, 10, and 14, he writes in the first person. The two streams are united in verse 18 with the words, For through him we, have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Together, Jew and Gentile are united as one, as described by Paul in verses 19 through 22. It is a masterful use of writing to demonstrate the marvel of what Christ has done in and for his redeemed. Wonderful there. 
the first verse of the chapter begins with, and you he made alive. The words he made alive are not in the original. They do they do belong there, but they're not in the original. It just, it says, let me read it without them. It says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, obviously it's pointing to something that happened when you were dead. He made you alive. So there you go. Uh, the words he made alive are not in the original, but they are inferred from verse 2-5, where it says, I'll start with 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So they've inferred that it belongs there in verse 1 as well, and it does. It's, it's a correct rendering of it. What Paul has done is jump back to his thought, which ended in verse 114. From verses 115 through 23, Paul directed his attention temporarily, and now he continues with the process of what occurs in the believer. If we take 113 and 14 and place 2-1 directly after them, we can see what Paul is relaying. So I'm going to do this. I'm not trying to ignore scripture. I'm showing you that what is in between them is parenthetical. So here we go. I'm going to read you 113 and 14 and 2-1 together. In him you also trusted... After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. There's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And at that time, there's no delay in it. I tell people, when you believe, you receive, and you are regenerated. It happens immediately. So much for Calvinism, which takes this and says it's like a three-part process, and, you know, it, it's not. It is immediate, and it is based on your belief in what Christ has done. So everything goes back to Christ. You simply accept the premise, and you are saved, okay? If I uh, stutter a little bit as far as reading, my eyes are puffy here right now, and I, I can't really see over this bump, and so i got to keep moving my glasses a little bit. I apologize. Anyway, um, so it's, you can see, okay, there we are. Our trusting in Christ, and not a moment before, Calvinists led to being sealed with Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee. At that moment, our spirits were regenerated, and we were made alive together with Christ. The rebirth is complete in the exercising of our faith, and in what results from that. Okay, once again, I'll show you just very quickly, so you know what I'm talking about, in case you've not heard this, is that we have the doctrine of being saved, and this is called regeneration, R-E-G-E-N-E-R-A-T-I-O-N, regeneration, okay? Calvinists say that they take John 3, 16, that says, um, you must be born again, and Nicodemus says, well, how can I go a second time into my mother's womb? And he says, you know, what is spirit, a spirit, and you know, okay, anyway, that's being born again. Calvin says that you are born again, God comes down and he born agains you. He chose you apart from any will. He just decided that guy's going to be born again. I'm born again. Oh, and then from there, born again, A-G-A-I-N. From there, they say, you then say, oh, I hear the message of Jesus and now I'm going to believe it. This is where you believe. Okay, B-E-L-E-I-E-I-V-I-E. Thank you. I knew that was wrong. I-E-V-E, okay? See, God born against you, and then you believe, and then after you believe, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, okay? That's Calvinism in a nutshell. That's, that's your process of 
being saved, according to Calvin. You had no choice in the matter. You could not choose, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in just another couple verses. You had no choice. You could not choose. You were dead in your sins, as it says in this verse. And because you're dead in your sins, it is impossible for you to make any choice for Christ. So God has to do an initial work of regenerating you. You're regenerated, and then you say, oh, I, I realize I can believe. And it's, it's a convoluted, stupid system. It is. But um, my mom's over there gritting her teeth. She's so angry about it. Anyway, um, that's the process. And can anybody tell me, before we get to the analysis of the verse, what is the problem with that? You cannot believe. You, ha- you do not have uh, uh, free will. And so God regenerates you, and then you believe. What is the problem with that? Uh, that's exactly it. Mom got it. What did you say? Well, that would be a, a result of it. That would mean that God... He, he does not love some people. It's not the God of the Bible because God loves everybody equally, and he doesn't just arbitrarily pick some and pass over others. Mom got it right. She said, say it again. Uh, we have no brain activity. We have no brain activity. Okay, and I, you're going to hear this again, but at least you will now know what she is talking about. It is what is called a category mistake because just because you are dead in your sins does not mean that you are a dead person. You are alive functioning, sentient being. You're cognizant of the world around you. You're able to choose good and bad in every single thing that you do in life. But Calvinists will deny that and say otherwise. And we'll see that in the analysis of this chapter. So remember the words category mistake. Everything in the world, everything in life falls into categories. And sometimes categories should not be mixed. Okay, when you mix categories, you come out with uh, errors in thinking. An error in thinking is another, is a, a form of saying a so a single word what no not a pretext error in thinking begins with f and ends with y as alice in the middle fallacy it's a fallacy an error in thinking is a fallacy or a fallacy is what's that yes starts with an f um okay so there you go it's so you do not want to mix categories when they are not to be mixed and that's what john calvin did and that has been passed down now for what 500 years or so okay so yes Genesis 1, he says, the day that you eat, you'll die. That's right. Well, and they, they will say that we can make bad decisions, but we can't make good decisions. Uh, that's See, they, they, they have to make stuff up. They have to make stuff up as they go. But that's right. We had free will to do that, but we don't have free will to go in the other direction. Okay. When If you look at it from this perspective, which I said a minute ago, we believe it is an act of our will, but it's based on what? What Christ has done. We didn't do anything. We just accepted the premise that what he did, everything, salvation is of the Lord, Lord, it says in Jonah. That's the process. He does everything. But we have a part in that process by saying we must believe. And that's what the Bible says. It says it right here in in, uh, verse 2-8. You were squinting. What's the matter? No, well, I'm just saying that the the, the problem with them is that you're, okay, if I had no choice in it, why did he even have to come? Exactly. There was no point. Why did like, no, okay, th- that's right. You are getting saved, and the rest of you are going to hell. That's yeah, it. that's right. Okay, so I can do atonement in any way I want. You know, I mean, it, it, it may be that you could logically think through that he would still have to send Jesus because that's a man that's in sin and he needs True. to die. True. But it wouldn't need to go through this long process of saying, okay, we need to send out missionaries and disciples and baptize. We wouldn't need to do all that. So you're right. There, There is a point where we would deviate from scripture. I don't know what, what set point that would be, but it is true that would happen. 
So um, the verse ends with um, rebirth is complete in the rebirth is complete in the exercising of our faith, not this. Okay, and in what, what results from that? The verse ends with who were dead in trespasses and sins. The inserted words are removed. The thought follows naturally with Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and which is then followed naturally with the subject, God, of verse 2, 4, and the object, us, of verse 2, 5. I'm going to read it just as I just described it, removing the words that were inserted here, and then adding in five, the word God, and I'm sorry, four, the word God, and then five, made us alive together with Christ. I'm taking just parts of the verses so you can see. We're getting rid of the inserted verses and getting rid of the parentheses, parentheses, and I'll read it again now with the full thought. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also, having believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 114, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, to one. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, for God, five, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It all flows naturally if you show the progression of Paul's thoughts without the inserted stuff in there. Obviously, the us of verse 2-5 speaks of both Jew and Gentile, who Paul refers to in the interim verses. But the overall stream of thought is realized when the verses are placed in this order. The intent of Paul's words is to show that humanity is fallen. There's no spiritual life in us, but through faith in the work of Christ, the spiritual connection to God is reestablished. What Adam lost for us by free will, Christ has regained for us through our free will. The chaos of mankind is brought into harmony and order through the work of Jesus Christ. Life application. Does everybody follow that? What I just said. That okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't kind of getting too quick on that. the The entire premise is that God has done all of the work, and if you just follow the Old Testament sh section, like uh, you know, Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and so they say, well, you know, God hardens whom He hardens, and He, you know, uh, what's the other one He uses? Hardens and the opposite. Anyway, uh, He what's that? Blinded. Yeah, blinded, hardened. So they're saying that he actively does that. And if you follow the progression of thought of Pharaoh, you will see that that is actually not true. The words that are used, and we went through this when we did the Exodus sermons, are different. One of them is hazak, to harden, and it'll say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you see it, every time it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it is in the passive. It is something that I'll give you an example so you can understand what's going on with Exodus. It is not a good set of verses to use when you're talking about this process of salvation in Ephesians. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How did he do it? He started out with a miracle. He went, they went before Pharaoh and they showed them the signs and he rejected that. One of the signs was to turn the water. Uh, what was the first one? I think it was throwing down the, 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 the snake was the first one. Okay. And what did Pharaoh's wise men or, you know, uh, Egyptians, magicians, what did they do? They did the same thing. What did that cause in Pharaoh's heart? Hardened. Because my guys can do what your guys can do. And so Pharaoh's heart is being hardened passively. God didn't just stick his finger in the Pharaoh's heart and actively harden him. He passively hardened him by throwing, having Moses throw down a stick and then his men throwing down a stick. But Pharaoh 
had hardened his heart enough where he overlooked the fact that Moses' stick ate the stick of all the others. Right. He, he, he wasn't thinking it through all the way. The next one was the blood. He threw the, the poured into the river. The river became blood. And it says that Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. Pharaoh says, well, if they can do that, then this is just a sleight of hand. And so I'm not going to worry about it. But the magnitude of the blood was a lot more. It's one thing to do it in a little pot with some, uh, you know, ferric chloride or whatever turns something red. I don't know what does it. But, you know, you throw that in, it turns red, and you say, well, we have blood here. Okay, it's a magnitude different that it's the whole Nile and all of the estuaries and everything else. And the same thing happened again. The fourth thing, it says that magi uh, Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing by their own magic practices. So three miracles in a row, they did these things. And so Pharaoh's heart is being hardened because of his own arrogance. The Lord knew his type of caliber. He knew what would prompt him. And so by the time it came to, I think it was the fourth miracle or the fourth, yeah, the fourth uh, plague where it was lice. I, I, I may not have the right one, but I think it was lice and it was the fourth one. It says that they said this is the finger of God. And it was too late. Pharaoh was already hardened. And then it backs up a little bit. You get a retreat. And then it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the Lord is slowly and meticulously working through this so that when he gets to the final plague, he says, he will let it, uh, your people go. But he was going to exalt himself so much over Egypt that one, they would be destroyed and couldn't come after them later in any effective way. But two, he would demonstrate his glory and greatness over all of the gods of Egypt and all of the pride of Egypt. So it was a slow process, but every single bit of it was actually a hardening on the part of Pharaoh. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it was because Pharaoh was an arrogant man and he saw the work of the Lord and he looked at it from a human perspective. So I hope you understand that. That's what's going on. The same thing here is that the Lord is working out things in human existence in one way or another for us to make our choices. And if we have an arrogant heart, he cannot use us. And so that's why you'll see somebody turn away from the Lord for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, their heart gets softened because they, they, something happens in their life. You know that movie that I watched a while ago? What was it? Um, uh, I Can Only Imagine. You know, the guy's father was, as he described him in the movie, a monster. So my father was a monster. He had a very hard heart. But at the end of his life, his heart softened. Okay? If the Lord was going to regenerate somebody to believe, he would have taken that guy and he would have done it without abusing his son for all of those years. Right? He would have just says, I'm going to regenerate this guy. I want him saved. It doesn't work that way. The Lord cannot use a person with a hard heart, and he will not harden. I'm talking actively harden a person's heart. He will passively do it, and when that person's heart is ready to be soft enough to call on him, he can use that person at that time, then he will do so. But it is totally a work of the Lord as far as the work of Christ. And then from there, we believe. Okay. Um, let's see here. Where was this? Um, oh, I don't remember where I was. Okay. Um, uh, hang on. We're in 2-2. Two, two, and... Oh, okay. Uh, as the human spirit can only be regenerated through faith and the work of Christ, then it follows logically that Jesus' claim of John 14, 6 is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God except through him. All right, good stuff there. So yeah, I didn't read my life application because I started talking about something else. So, um, verse 2-2. Two, two. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, this one's completely different. In which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It says the same thing, it's just completely reworded. Okay, and the in which is the trespasses and sins. That's what he's referring to. I'll read them together and you'll see that. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. You were walking in trespasses and sins. Okay, so this verse follows one continued thought from verse one, which I just read you. And you, meet, you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The words in which speak of the trespasses and sins. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, notes that they, and thus also we who follow after, once walked according to the course of this world. The walk, once again, without even going on, the word walk always signifies conduct, your conduct in this life. You're walking in accord with the Lord. You're walking in accord with the world. You're walking in accord with Satan. Walking is your conduct, how you are relaying your life to other things. Okay, the word course simply means age. The current age of this world is one of trespasses and sins. And as we get closer to the end, we can see that the course of this age is getting more and more and more wicked. Then when we talk about the Bible nowadays, we are more and more and more shunned because the more wickedness there is, the less they want to do with the light, the less they want to do with righteousness. That's just the way it is. I'm sure that's the way it was for Noah. You know, he is a preacher of righteousness. He's standing out there. He's building this ark, probably telling people, you guys better repent. Yeah, the judgment is coming. And they're probably laughing at him. They're probably mocking him. They probably thought of, of him as a curiosity. Let's go take pictures of Noah with his big boat. I mean, whatever they were thinking, you know. And yes, they had cameras back then. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, you know, it, it just is... Uh, uh, it, that's the way it is nowadays. We're almost, I, I think a lot of the people that are uh, really preaching, you know, not these goofy people that get out there and just condemn everybody, but are just telling you, you need to repent. You need to, I think they're probably looked at almost as a curiosity. Like, uh, we don't want to kill this guy because we're, he's so perverse. We just want to see what he has to say. I could be wrong on this, but Noah survived up until the end with all of the wickedness around him. And he got on that boat and nobody took his life. So he was a preacher. The Bible says he was. He was telling them about repentance and they weren't listening. So there's a point where, you know, the world almost has a, a itching ear to hear how, how stupid you can get with your, your, you know, your, your good theology. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you don't know. But anyway, they, uh, they, uh, they suffered their judgment and the world will suffer judgment because of where we are right now. We're following according to the course of this world. It means an age. The current age of this world is one of trespasses and sins. People are conceived in sin, Psalm 51, verse 5 or 6. They are born in sin, they live in sin, and they die in sin. Without Christ, this would be the continued course of this world for all people and forever. Our walk would be a walk of death leading to death. Paul further expands on the thought with the words, according to the prince of the power of the air. There can be no doubt that this is speaking of the devil, Satan. He is the ruler of this course or of this age. He deceived Adam. 
And from that moment on, he has had the rule over all that has occurred here, everything. And Jesus did not dispute that when he was taken out into the wilderness and or when he went out into the wilderness and then Satan appeared to him three times. He says, all of this is mine. It's been given to me and I have authority over it and I can give it to whoever I want. Jesus didn't say, no, it's not. He didn't argue with him at all about that. He understood that the devil had the power of this world. Christ has regained that power, but he has not exercised that rule yet. And so that's where people kind of get confused with that one. He has all power, he has all authority, but he also has a plan. And if he was to exercise his rule and authority right away, then all of the people that would have been saved won't be saved. But he is very slowly and methodically allowing man to continue on. He's allowing people, you know, like you and me, fallible people, to continue to tell people about Jesus. And someday, judgment is going to come upon this world. And the people that don't come to a saving faith with Christ or who are never told the message because we're not faithful enough to send missionaries overseas will never be saved. God has a plan and he knows everything that's going to happen in that process. But for right now, he has full rule and authority. He is not exercising it. That still belongs to the devil. What's that? Yeah, he's definitely not doing this. He's definitely not doing that. But, uh, you know, uh, and we know that this is true also simply by reading the book of Revelation, because it says, God, Satan is cast down. He's here on the world, et cetera, et cetera. We got all that going on. And then we come to the millennial reign of Christ. And what happens to Satan? He's put into the, he's bound for a thousand years. So Satan has no rule and no authority over the world. And Christ will be in charge of the whole world. And it says, but he must be released for a short while. What happens after it's released? All of a sudden you got Gog Magog coming against the people of God. God is showing us through the dispensational model that no matter what circumstances we live in, ideal circumstances with, you know, a conscience, you know, just living in the presence of God or living under promise or living under law, it doesn't matter what dispensation, what the course of the world is for us, we will always choose the bad course. That's the point of this. And it's showing us that we desperately need Jesus Christ in every single time of human existence. Christ will reign on the throne from Jerusalem. There's going to be peace in the world. People are going to be living hundreds of years. It says, as of the days of a tree will be the days of my people, etc. They're going to be living very long days in this ideal, you know, environment, and they will have the Lord Christ ruling from Jerusalem, and they will still blow it when Satan is released again. It shows you the power of the wickedness of the human heart without Christ. So there you go with that. He deceived Adam, and from that moment on, he has ruled over all that has occurred here. The title given to him by Paul, the Prince of the Power of the Air, is unique in the Bible, and it has given scholars a great deal of debate as to what it exactly means. However, it isn't too difficult to determine by thinking about the way that the world has been structured. Man was created a temporal, which means a physical being. This is all temporal stuff, okay? He was given dominion over the earth, the air surrounds the earth, and it is the sphere in which we move. As angels and demons are spirit beings, they don't move on the earth as we do. Rather, their movement can be equated to moving through the air. They rule over the sons of disobedience, meaning fallen man from this position. Okay, uh, there used to be this dumb argument back in the dark ages, how many 
angels can anybody dance, on the, dance on the head of a pen. You know, in one way, it's a stupid argument because you got a pen which has got a teeny little head, and you want. But at the same time, it's an actual uh, uh, valid argument that you want to consider because how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? One, a thousand, a million? They don't have any temporal nature. They don't have any physical nature. And so we could say that all of the angels that ever are or ever will be, which that's kind of, I should just say that all the angels that are could dance on the head of a pen. But the fact is, a pen is temporal. It's a physical thing. So it's, once again, you've got a category mistake. And so that's a way of identifying that we're making a category mistake. So, you know, having an argument like that may be ridiculous, but it helps us to think through our own position. We are physical beings. These are spiritual beings. And so we don't really know what's going on. So when you, you know, somebody sent me a, a video this week and she asked me, would you look at this and tell me, is this, you know, worth watching or not? And I kind of clicked through it and I watched a little bit and I finally just couldn't take any more. And I, I will give you a couple hints. I gave them to her. If you ever have a video, it's talking about prophecy and end times and stuff. If you ever have a video and it's got a computer generated voice, it's not worth listening to. Okay, I just don't, yeah, don't, don't even bother with that one. Uh, I gave her a second hint, which was, um, what was it? Oh, I said, if they ever predict a future date for something, the rapture for the number of years that it's going to be until the tribulation period or et cetera, it's not worth watching. Okay, don't watch those videos, because if you're watching those videos, you're being misdirected. And then finally, I gave her one other point. Um, if it, oh, be leery if it's a video that has a million views, because generally people that have really no theology at all will watch a lot of junk like that, and you'll get millions of views, and it, it, it's not worth watching. I'm not saying that all million view videos aren't worth watching, but you, it's a general clue that if there's a lot of supposed Christians watching stuff like that, it's probably the people that just want their ears tickled. So uh, that's my advice as far as you know, videos about theology, especially if they have a computer-generated voice. If they can't use their own voice and tell who they are that's giving you that information, they're probably not worth watching. Anyway, that was just a, that was my advice to her, but I got through about five minutes of it. I, I just can't take any more of this, you know. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, talking about the angels, their movement can be equated to moving through the air. They rule over the sons of disobedience, meaning fallen man, from this position. Whatever it is, it's just Paul's way of describing that they are not a part of this world, okay? However, God is above them, ruling from heaven. So we got the temporal earth, we've got this air around us, which, you know, Paul was not a scientist and he didn't know what it was made of, but it's a way of describing that they're in this different realm. And then the Bible speaks of heaven, which is another realm. And we know that God is in heaven. If he's in heaven, which we always associate with above. Now, we know in the world today, so this is not an error in the Bible, okay? People will say, well, see, that's an error in the Bible. The earth is round, okay? No. There's, it's well, it, it's spherical, thank you. Yes, it, it, round could mean flat and round. Okay, yeah. you're right, it's spherical, okay? We know that. It's not a flat earth, okay? We have the spherical earth, which means that up is really relative, isn't it? Because the earth is surrounded by this air, which Paul didn't understand. And when he says, well, heaven is up there, where? Over here? Over here? Because we know that it's a spherical earth. That is irrelevant, okay? When, I, uh, when um, Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes that the sun also 
rises, he was looking at it from what? From our perspective. When Paul was writing these things, he didn't know that the earth was a globe. Maybe he did because, what's his name, Socrates and Aristotle, they'd already figured that out. And if Paul knew their writings, then he knew it was a globe. Okay, but it's irrelevant because when the Lord writes about things that are happening in this universe, he writes about them for our benefit. And so it's irrelevant to say that the sun doesn't rise, that the earth is spinning on an axis and it's going around. It doesn't matter. What matters is that God is making this for all people on this planet, the wise and the unwise, to look out and to say, oh, I understand what he is saying. So please, when it says something like that, the the prince of the power of the air, and well, they're not spiritual and the air is a temporal thing, and he is writing it for us to consider in whatever position we are in this world, from whatever land we are, wherever the Bible is translated, people will read that and they will understand it. Okay, so we don't want to get too caught up in the physical writings, you know, the writings about the physical nature of the universe by people and suddenly get distracted from the fact that God is writing about things that are happening from our perspective. He always does that. And when he says that I am the Lord and I am in heaven above, it's everywhere. God is everywhere. Okay, we know that. But he's writing so that when we look up and we look up in a state of awe at the glory that's going on out there, we can say, oh, God is in the heavens above. Every person on this planet understands that. And so that's why it's written that way. Okay, so God is ruling them from heaven. Thus, he is ultimately in control of all things, even within the sphere of the air, the air where the devil exercises his power. This is evidenced in the book of Job. It is also seen in the Gospels, Acts, and elsewhere. Let me take you to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll read something from there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to read you 16 and 17. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're meeting the Lord where? In the air. What did he just say Satan is? The prince of the power? The air. Christ is in control of all things. Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the pit of the ground, the grave. So that's the idea that man gets... Listen, if somebody gets exploded on a rocket up in space, he's just as human and he's going to be raised just the same as anybody that is down in the the pit or that fell into a volcano and got melted down in the center of the earth. We're using terms that we can understand so that when... (laughs) She's over there. Okay, um, so he's going to descend from heaven and raise the dead from the pit of the ground, meaning the grave, demonstrating his authority over that realm. He will catch up those who are on the earth, who are still alive, demonstrating his authority over that realm. And together we will meet him in the air, demonstrating his authority over that realm. It will be an in-your-face demonstration to the devil, showing that he is utterly defeated by the authority of Christ. Yes, good news. Absolutely. If you just look at the words that Paul uses and the way that he describes things, like I said, don't let scientists and evolutionists and people with all of these agendas tell you that the Bible is not reliable. The Bible is written for the purpose of us us understanding what God is doing 
from our perspective and everything will be made known. But I can assure you something. If I'm wrong on this, that's fine. The Lord is not going to be angry at me for being wrong. But the Bible says that God created in six days. And I take that literally. No person on this planet didn't take that literally that had read the Genesis account until the foolishness of the Enlightenment. And they started to come up with all of these crazy ideas. Every person believed. Paul wrote it. He believed it. Moses received it from God, and he believed it. God created in six days. Now, there are different ways of looking at the creation. I might as well say this so you get an idea. If you know what an event horizon is, it's the horizon at which something occurs in a uh, uh, spatial matter. And so one guy came up with a great idea about why there are billions of years. This is a very intelligent scientist. He's, he's uh, not to be taken lightly. He just happens to be a creationist also. But, you know, and I'm not talking about the six days on Earth, because when we are on Earth, six days are six days. But the Earth can slip below the event horizon. It's like you've got, we know that time, I mean, space can be bent. Einstein proved it. So here's the event horizon and here's this bending and we slip below the event horizon. And so God is doing something out here and it takes 3 billion years. And then when we are brought back up to the event horizon, all of a sudden the universe is 3 billion years old and yet we're only a day old because God has got the thing going out here is separate from here. And that would explain all of the oldness of the universe apart from us. And I have no problem with that. It says he created the heavens and the earth in six days, okay? And he would have done that from six days of man on earth because the earth is from man's perspective. But it was six days on earth. Now, what happened on earth with the creation of man, with the creation of the animals, with the creation of the mountains and the gold and everything in there? That had to happen literally in the days that are written. Okay, I don't care about what happens out here, and I'm not smart enough to say that that's a correct analysis or not. If it is, it is. If it's not, it's not. But I believe that from man's perspective, everything on this planet and everything in the universe is no more than six days old. Okay, it could be older out here and younger here, and that's possible. But I'm talking about on the earth itself, which is part of our earth. Yes. What did he create? He created everything. Time, matter. Oh, that's right. Time, space, so, matter. He can do anything within. That's right. He can do anything within the realm of time, space, right. and matter. How he did it is what we are trying to figure out. And as Johannes Kepler, he Johannes Kepler is the one that said it. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. That's correct. And so this is what this guy is doing. He's trying to figure out how did he do this? Where Because, and it does say, now don't get me wrong, Isaiah says that he stretches out the heavens, right? And so how did he do that? This is one possible explanation. It doesn't say anything about the earth. The earth and what we are on was in six literal days. If this was a part of that, it still happened within six literal days from man's perspective. And that's all that matters is from man's perspective because God is not going to lie to man. So that's why I believe that if I'm wrong, the Lord will forgive me for not being smart enough to understand, you know, all the things that these smart people believe. But I take it by faith that God created in six days. He said he did it. There's no reason to not accept that. So understanding this, I'll read this last sentence again. It will be an in-your-face demonstration to the devil 
showing he is utterly defeated by the authority of Christ at the rapture. Wonderful words from Thessalonians. Paul's words show that we were once under the power of the devil. We dwelt in his sphere of influence, and we walked according to his government. And this government, though defeated in Christ, as I said, Christ is already in control of all things. All power belongs to him. It's defeated, but it continues on at this time. The Lord has allowed that to happen to multiply his church, to multiply the redeemed of the world. And there's no point in redeeming people that have been perfected. Everybody got that? You're redeeming people that are imperfect. That's the glory of what God is doing. And that's why we're allowed to continue on. It's because we got all these imperfect people being evangelized by more imperfect people. And God is being glorified through it because he's making something perfect out of something that isn't perfect. He's using us to do something that is going to be astounding. So that's, but none of that would have happened if he just came down and defeated the devil at the cross and said, okay, I'm taking over. We wouldn't have this beautiful thing that he's doing right now. So people worry about what's going on in the world. We should not worry about what's going on in the world. God has a plan. We should know that it will be perfectly executed. Okay. Uh, and this government, though defeated in Christ, continues on at this time. It is ruled by this same spirit, Paul says, who now works in the sons of disobedience. As we look at the world around us, we can see the evident truth of this. Those who are not redeemed certainly walk in the course of this world. They are under the rule of the devil, and they are subject to his wicked direction. Unfortunately, far too many Christians still walk according to his rule, even though they have been freed from the power of the trespasses and sins which they were once subjected to. Okay, and you know, we all do to some point. I don't want to put myself on a pedal and say, oh, look at those bad people that are, you know, we all in one way or another walk according to this world. We're not supposed to, but we get carnal in one way or another. We just have to pick ourselves up and say, today I'm going to live for the Lord. That's what we do with our lives. Life application. We have been freed from the devil's power by the work of Christ. And yet, how often do we allow ourselves to fall back into his sphere of wickedness? Let us consider that we have been bought with a price. We belong to a new master, and our allegiance is to be to him and to him alone. Let us endeavor to live for Christ at all times. And once again, we know that this is true. Anybody that says, I am sinless, is probably the biggest sinner on this planet right now. You know, you get these Christians that act like they are and they have all their dirty secrets in their closets. So we, we don't want to be too high-headed about our own selves. But at the same time, we also don't want to forget that if we fail and we know we're failing, we know that we're doing wrong, that 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God is not imputing our sins to us. Because if he was, we would all, every one of us, have lost our salvation the day that we were saved every single one of us, but God is not imputing our sins to us. The glory of what God has done for us is beyond our comprehension, and we're going to see this. We're actually going to talk about it when we get in three, four more verses, but for now, two, three. All of us have also lived among them at one time, gratifying the craving of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Okay, once again, completely different. Among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul just said it. 
We were all in that state. Read it one more time and think of yourselves. Among whom also we, he's talking about every single person, including himself, all once conducted ourselves in the flesh, lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And we were, all of us, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. I think I skipped a sentence here, but my eyes are fat and I'm not going to go back and reread it a third time. I'm looking down and all I see is this, this chin bone. Um, two, three, this verse is referring to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works now in the sons of disobedience of the previous verse. Here, Paul makes an all-inclusive statement. He has been speaking to the Ephesians with the word you. Now, he includes himself and all people, Jew and Gentile, with the words we and all. You can see, and he does this throughout this chapter, and so you want to pay attention. When is he saying it in the second person? When is he saying it in the first person? This reveals a truth that is seen both implicitly and explicitly in Scripture. We are conceived in sin. I don't see that I quoted that there, so I'm going to take you there so I can just read it. I, I kind of went over it last time, and I don't want you to think I just made that up, so I'm going to take you there. It says there in Psalm 51, I think it's verse 6, but it might not be, 51 verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That means he was born in iniquity, but, and in sin, my mother conceived me. So there you go. He is sinful from conception. He was brought forth in a sinful state. Okay, so Psalm 51, 5. I should have known it was 5. I don't know why I said 6. What's the matter with my brain today? Okay, um, so it reveals the truth, both implicitly and explicitly in Scripture. We are conceived in sin, born in sin, and of course, we live in sin. We are under the influence of the devil. Until we come to Christ, this is our default position. That was one of those words I remember the first time I ever heard it. I was reading a manual about how to do something on a computer, and the guy used the word default. He kept using it. I didn't know what the word default meant. He says, this is the default position, and if you want to change it, you've got to switch to this. And I'm like, what is he talking about? Now it's the most common word in the world. But default, it simply means this is where you are. This is your setting. When you were born, your setting was sin. Okay? In order to change that default setting, you have to have Christ. And then your setting changes. You are no longer in sin. You still sin. Don't get me wrong, but it is not being imputed to you. You are covered by the blood of Christ, and this is now your default setting. Okay? The difference between this and this is that this can be changed. This will never be changed. Once you come to Christ, your default setting changes, and the devil can no longer ever again take that away from you. If people would get that right, we would have so much more harmony and unity within the church. But these people that say that you can lose your salvation are a damage. They are a damage to proper theology, and they destroy people's lives. Okay, I'm not saying they're not saved. They can be just as saved as you and me, but they have miserable lives. They teach other people to have miserable lives, and they put them into the bondage that Christ redeemed us from. This goes here to here, and it will never change from this again. Our default setting is Christ now. That's what the Bible teaches. It's guaranteed. Absolutely. The world doesn't like to hear this. The common term, he's a good person, is used to show that humans can be inherently good. But this is not what the Bible teaches. Rather, we may be good in relation to others, but we are far from good in the biblical sense. Good in the biblical sense means God. God is good. We are nowhere near God, even in our very best of days. We are not 
So when we say he's a good person, we're saying it from a human perspective. We're grading that person with that person or maybe with that person over there. But I'm going to tell you what, somebody thought that Adolf Hitler was good. They supported him. Some of the people actually died for him. They gave up their, remember the people that, uh, I don't remember the guy's name that worked for him. The day that he killed himself, what did they do? They went and they took uh, the poison, that, the one you bite on and it kills you real quickly, cyanide. They took cyanide and put it, at first they gave their children sleeping pills to put them to sleep. And then they went and they put cyanide tablets in their mouth and broke the tablets in their kid's mouth and killed all their children. And then they killed each other. They thought that Adolf Hitler was good. So to say that somebody is good is basing it on a very, very flimsy scale. Okay, God is good, and there is none good but God. Yes? Jesus said there's none good but God. That, there you go. Absolutely. See, we're thinking on the same lines there, Burke. Um, so there you go. You know, and that goes back to the, the ruler. I, I'm not going to go there right now. I think it's uh, Matthew. Anyway, he, he, he comes to him, and he says... Um, uh, what good yeah, what good, he said, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? What good thing can I do? And he says, you know the commandments. And he says, well, I've done all those things. And he said, but before he said that to him, Jesus said, do these and you will have life. He was quoting, not directly, but he was giving the idea of Leviticus 18.5. The man who does the things of the law will live by them. And he's saying, do these things and you will have life. And he says, you know, Lord, I've done these since I was uh, uh, my whole life or whatever. He said, since I was a kid or whatever. And he said, well, you got one more thing to do then. He says, go and sell all of your possessions and come and follow me and you will, you know, whatever. He didn't understand that he was an idolater. He idolized his money more than he loved God. And he, Jesus just drew that out of him. He was able to pull that out of that young person. It says he went away sad. Okay, well, the Lord has a way of finding out our faults and identifying them to us if we, we will pay attention. And that guy didn't pay attention. Now, he may have gotten saved later. He may not have gotten saved later. But he was under the law. Jesus was talking to him under the law, and he was telling him what the law demands, perfection. You want to be a part of God's kingdom? You have to be perfect. And this is how you do it. You live out the law perfectly. And he couldn't do it. So that shows you, if he couldn't do it, if nobody else could do it in all of those thousands of years, why would you want to go back under that burden? Why would anybody want to go back under that when Christ has done it for us and we can be in him and he satisfied the law for us? I don't understand the, the thought process of people saying that we should be observing the law of Moses. It makes no sense. Okay, default position, he's a good person. We may be good in relation to others, but we are far from good in the biblical sense. Instead. We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, as Paul says. Here, Paul is referring to the physical lusts that we as humans pursue. And we think of the word lust usually in a sexual term. That's how society uses it. But that's not the only way. We can lust after money. We can lust after, you know, uh, uh, sports cars. We can lust after a billion things. It's just in our society we use that word and so you want to understand what Paul is saying when he says the lusts of the flesh. He's talking about anything that takes our eyes away from the Lord. Okay, here Paul is referring to the physical lusts that we as humans pursue. Anything which is earthly and sensual and which is not deemed as a holy pursuit is considered in the words, the lusts of the flesh. However, 
Paul has more, which he includes in the overall depravity of man. He next states, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The soul of the man is inclusive of both the conduct of the flesh of the body as well as that of the mind. If anybody denies that, then all you need to do is talk to somebody that has a pornography addiction. The mind has just as much of a control over us as does the physical world. Our mind is a terrible place to get lost in. The mind speaks of our thoughts, which we may act on, or which we may simply dwell on without taking any action. Either way, they are a part of that which is directed by the devil and which is cause for separation from God. As these things are instilled in our very nature, even from conception itself, it shows the complete and utter depravity of man. The devil has total power to work in the sons of disobedience, complete and absolute control over us. Our thoughts are corrupt. Our lives are corrupt. Everything about us is corrupt. And without Christ to give us a new direction and a new birth, we cannot come anywhere near God. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much good you've done in your life. Money has no bearing on your relationship with God. How hard you work, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that you are corrupt and you cannot save yourself and we need Jesus Christ. Because of these things, all people are separated from God. Even those who have come to Christ were at one time, Paul says, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. The Greek word for by nature is phusis. It indicates the underlying constitution or makeup of someone or something. It's the very basis of what we are. It is that which is fused to our very nature. Two important truths must be considered in these words. The first is explicit, that without Christ we would still be children of wrath. As this was our very nature, there is nothing we could do about changing it. It was tied into who we were completely and entirely. Thus, as children of wrath, just think of the bread, put in a little bit of yeast, and mix it up, and that bread is completely filled with yeast. There's no part of it that isn't. I gave this as a part of a sermon years ago, and then I used it again when we started the superior word. So some of you, I know Jim was there for that one. Some of you have heard this twice. I think the doctor and Mabel were probably sitting there that day. It was when I was back at Grace Baptist. But when you have San Francisco sourdough bread, okay, it's one of the oldest, maybe the oldest sourdough bread in the nation. It goes back over 100 years. Before California was a state, they've been making San Francisco sourdough bread. And what they did is over 100 to 120, 130 years ago, they took some yeast and they put it in some dough, okay? And they made the first batch of San Francisco sourdough bread. A little bit of yeast and one batch of dough. Okay, and every single day without fail for the past 130 or whatever years it is, they've taken a piece of that bread and they've cut off one piece of it and they've set it off and left it on the counter for the next day. That's called a starter. And what they do is they make a new batch of dough the next day and they take that starter and they throw it into the batch of dough and they mix it up. And they've done this with one bit of yeast, one bit of yeast for 130 years and it is still causing that same dough that they start every single day to be leavened. That's how powerful the effects of sin are. Adam got sin in him 6,000 years ago, and that same sin is being mixed into every single human being ever since then. That's the power of sin. So if you think that you're not infected with it completely, 
All you have to do is think of uh, San Francisco sourdough bread. It's completely infected with the, that yeast, and we are completely infected with sin. As this is our very nature, there is nothing we could do about changing it. It was tied into who we were completely and entirely. Thus, as children of wrath, we were destined for destruction and complete separation from the holy God. The second one is implicit, that we are now no longer considered just as the others. That's Paul, just as the others. Instead, even though we may have the same lusts and desires because we are still in our fallen bodies, we have a new nature according to Christ. That's our default position now. Our sin is not imputed to us, 2 Corinthians 5.19, because of Christ. Instead, we are children of God and no longer children of wrath. Our new nature is infused in us. Whatever he put into the dough, it has changed our nature completely. It's no longer San Francisco sourdough bread. It's whatever, unleavened and holy, just as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 5. You are no longer this type of bread. You are now a new lump in Christ. We go from a state of anticipated destruction and separation to a state of anticipated redemption and glorification. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Paul will continue to explain this in the verses ahead. We are now no longer directed by the devil, even though we still live in earthly, corruptible bodies. Instead, we are direct, directed by Christ. Sin is dead in us because we died to sin through the work of Christ. The thought of this verse can be seen reflected in the words of John 1, 12 and 13. I could quote you 14 right now, but I can't remember what John 1, 12 and 13 says, so I'm going to have to go back there and read it to you. John 1, here we are, 12 and 13, and it says, uh, back a little more, 12. Okay, I'm going to take you to 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 12, oh yes, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Life application. You have received Christ. If you have received Christ, then you have been granted the right to be called a child of God. In Christ, we are granted freedom from the power of the devil. Some wondrous day we will be taken out of these fallen bodies. Oh, won't that be great? Which continue? I thought yesterday was the day for me. I'm like, man, I'm out of here, buddy. Some wondrous day we will be taken out of these fallen bodies, which continue to struggle with the trials of the fallen world. We will be granted new bodies, a completely new nature, and eternal existence, which will be forever pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Man, can that day not come soon enough. I'm telling you what. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who has made that at least possible, even though he's waiting for his time frame and not ours. Because yesterday, you know, when I woke up after, when I passed out and I woke up and there was that guy, there was an EMS guy and all I saw was, I couldn't lift my head. All I saw was a tattooed arm and I thought I'm back. You know, <laughs> whatever. So, quick question. Yes. Okay, so the people that will be alive during the millennium, they are not in the perfect body. Uh, well, it depends. It says uh, those that were martyred during the tribulation period will be raised to life. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is he who is a part of the first resurrection. The second uh, death has no power over him. So I would assume they, if they're not in the same bodies as us, which I'm not going to debate with people, if they want to argue that, that's fine. They may be in glorified bodies. They may be in earthly bodies that are 
I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. They were able to fall Yes. Well, that's because some people will come in that were not raised. And so they will be a part of the people that are living and dying normal lives. And eventually Satan will be released again. And those will be the people that will fall. So you're right. That is that is correct. So you got different things going on in the millennium. You know, I chipped my tooth yesterday, too. I I must have done it biting it or something when I was in there because I, now I got to get my tooth fixed. Yes, Burke. Billy Graham says, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head. Right. But I can stop them from making a nest in my hair. Well, that's right. See, we have a choice of sin. That's right. Okay. There, the, the sin is flying all around us, and we can either let it nest in our hair, or we can say we're not doing that. That's exactly right. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful book. Man, Ephesians is just so glorious. We thank you for the, uh, the uh, chance to discuss it together and to share in it and to think about it and to know that it is the perfect word for us at this time in our lives and that uh, we should apply its truth to our lives because we are the redeemed that you have called unto yourself. And so help us to live this life properly in your presence and to not uh, continue in the life of sin that is so easily, easily affecting us. Help us to be above that. And when we fail, we know that we're already forgiven and we thank you for that in Christ. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me take this over here for the folks online.